Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show. I've missed you. Been thinking about you a lot. Um, I've been over in the UK for a couple of weeks. Had the privilege of flying over for a beautiful wedding. If you ever have the opportunity to go to Woodhall Manor in Suffolk, I highly encourage you to do so. But it is good to be back and I really wanted to get into more of the science of happiness with you. So if I sound a little, a little tired... Um, it's because I only flew back in about a day and a half ago. So, um, but I wanted to push on nevertheless, because I think this is really important. So I'm armed with a trusty glass of water. Mm-mm. Water tastes different here than the UK too, by the way. And you cannot get a good coffee to save your life. I don't care what anyone tells you. Coffee in the UK doesn't exist. It's a myth. Anyway, enough about that. Let's talk about what makes us happy, shall we? Um, so last week, uh, or rather in the last episode on this, um, we talked about some of the fundamentals of happiness. You know, what it is and what it isn't, and the different cultural ideas around happiness. And I got to share some of my thoughts as well in terms of what had stood out to me when I looked at uh, the course material. So we're going to follow on in that light this week. And this week, um, we're going to be talking about happiness and social connection. And so this week's... Um, uh, material starts off with uh, Emiliana Simon Thomas, who you might recall from the last of these sessions, is the science director at the Greater Good Science Centre. She's one of the key um, lecturers, facilitators for this course. And she just starts off by talking about this, the research from across the field of positive psychology that's shown how important social connections are to our happiness. Um, and uh, something that will be brought up a little bit later on and connects with what we talked about uh, in the first episode is is how much our social connectivity is broken down, how we have less close friends than we used to. Um, and it's a fascinating paradigm, isn't it, where we've got things like social media, which seems to be kind of ironic, right? Like the more we look at it, the less there seems to be sociability in it, no, no real relating. It's more like um, interpersonal advertising. I quite like that thought, actually. Interpersonal advertising. It's kind of what it is. Like, think about yourself like a product or a brand, and then social media is what you use to sell that brand. But you can't have a relationship with a product. That, to me, is kind of what's going on with social media. That's really deep. Man, this trip really did good things for me. So anyway, that's my thought about that kind of stuff. Um, Emiliana Simon-Thomas goes on talking about this kind of thing and saying that very happy people have really rich relationships. They don't spend a lot of time alone. Um, and that things like talking with friends is one of the happiest activities. Also, sex and socializing give us a lot of positive emotion. There you go. Do you need science to tell you that? Uh, on the flip side, loneliness is correlated with health problems. Um, and not just broadly speaking, we're talking about things like hyperinflammation, um, decreased immune response, and trouble sleeping. And a really fascinating insight from the studies I've done shows that when people are excluded by others in a social setting, if you look at a brain scan, it creates the same effect as physical pain. So that's how much being isolated harms us. And when I looked at this, it made me think about, um, there's a lot of talk about extroverts versus introverts, and it is set up as a versus kind of battle sometimes. I have often questioned the healthy limits of, of alone time and the healthy limits of, of being with other people. But particularly this idea of alone time, I've known and at certain points in my life as well, being the kind of person who has said, no, I just prefer my own company. I do wonder how much of that is really just a, a way of protecting yourself and making excuses for what's probably just unhealthy behavior. You know, like in the same way that people who smoke know that it 
has health problems, but they're health problems for other people. I wonder if by creating this culture that we have where we can be so isolated and just saying, well, that's just the way that I am. You know, the science is showing us that it's actually not the way you are, but where's the balance at, right? I don't have an absolute answer for that, but I just think it's a, an interesting point to, to look at. So moving on to the next part of um, the, the research from this week, and it goes to the power of a socially connected childhood. And this looks at the work by Lauren Klein. Uh, and for you Kiwis listening, this is based on a study from New Zealand. And it followed hundreds of people from childhood to age 38. And it wanted to look at the link between achievement and social connection uh, and happiness. So both achievement and social connection were associated with happiness for children. But when they reached later teen years, the social connection became more important. The social connection that they had gave them support during different challenges they went through in life and helped people to find their own strengths and give them a sense of meaning as well. Um, and in fact, that whole idea about meaning as well in terms of social connection, I thought I was having about that recently that I thought I'd share with you as well, is that because we are social beings, because we live in community with one another, I've often heard that comparison is a... Uh, is a terrible thing to do. You know, don't be comparing yourself to other people. And I understand the wisdom of that. But I also think if we are social beings, then understanding ourselves in relation to other people is kind of a negative, uh, kind of not a negative, kind of inevitable, right? Trying to tell ourselves that you shouldn't look to other people to get a sense of who you are, it seems to go against the way we've been made. You know, other people do pull us up on our behavior. They help us to understand where the limits are in our culture and rightly or wrongly, they give us a sense of ourselves. And that whole idea too, that was in this research about finding out where our strengths are, I have found in my own life and in other friends, I've had conversations with about this as well. When you have a natural strength in a certain area, it can be very hard to see it. It's always been easy for you. You don't have to struggle. So we don't value it as highly. I have the privilege of spending a lot of time with very talented musicians and you would not believe how hard it is to tell a talented musician that they are a talented musician because they are very aware of the other more talented musicians than they. So I started to wonder whether or not it's not so much the comparison but more the judgment that comes with it which is the issue. It's okay that somebody might be better than you at a particular thing but it's when that evolves, evolves that erodes our sense of self. I do still have a little jet lag. That's probably what's kicking in. Um, that, that that causes the problem. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about that, actually. And as we do go along, remember, you can always email through to the Andrew Curtis Show at gmail.com to let me know your thoughts. But anyway, this whole idea of social connection being, um, you know, a key sense of what provides happiness for us and the comparison that goes with it. Love to hear what you think about that. So moving into the next part and... Dacher Keltner, the other lead facilitator in this course, and also the uh, one of the professors of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, starts to look at this idea of how human beings are ultra-social. This might be a revelation to you, but human beings aren't really like any other animal on the face of the planet. And one of the strongest ways this comes across is in how, how sociable we are. It talks about um, being ultra-social, rather, talks about our caretaking behavior, our egalitarian relations uh, with one another, our tendency for forgiveness and reconciliation, 
talking about things like coordinated and imitative actions, how we mimic the behaviors of, of other people, and even things like monogamy. So these are all things that define us as ultra-social, yet as I alluded to earlier on, excuse me, uh, modern society is becoming a lot less social in certain respects. And this is evidenced by, in this particular case, they talk about higher divorce rates and less marital satisfaction. The fact that there's an increase in loneliness with people and that we have fewer close friends. So we can see the tension there and how our ultra social, ultra social nature is in competition with what our lifestyle is like at the moment. So from this point, we start to look at where does this breakdown come from? And uh, Dacher Keltner now looks to the work of John Bowlby and talking about how families become attached to one another. And they've identified three different systems. So the first is reproductive, so through sex. The next is through caregiving. So that would be between parents and babies. And then there's attachment, which is love and commitment. So taken together, what these three do is they give us a bit of um, a blueprint, a working model of what attachment looks like. It's our deeply held views about whether people are trustworthy and how to relate to them. And they're so deep that I don't think we recognize we're having those thoughts. It's just a natural way of approaching the world and the way it is and others around us. The thing is, what Bowlby identified was that there's three attachment styles that can come from our working model that we picked up from our family. So one of those is secure. That's the good one. You might be shocked to know. The next is anxious. And then the last is avoidant. And so people who are securely attached are loving and warm and trusting. And as a result, they tend to be happier and have more positive emotions. They have more stable relationships. They're more optimistic, more forgiving, and they're more supportive. What I find striking there too is this idea of trust. Because when I have in my own life, through my work, and then personally, spoken to people who have been from less safe backgrounds. The idea of trust is seen as a liability. You've got to be very careful who you trust, and it is a very high wall to be trusted by these people. And even when you've climbed that wall, you're not secure in your position on the other side of it. It doesn't take a lot to transgress against somebody who has trouble trusting and be on the outside completely again. So I'd love to just get your thoughts on this part too. Maybe throw the thought around in your mind a little bit and see how you react to it. This idea that actually our happiness is very much grounded in how prepared we are to trust one another. And that being more trusting is being proven to... Um, have health benefits and be better for us than to be less trusting. Because being less trusting can seem like a safer way of living. I totally understand that. So this was the kind of thing when I started to learn about that really struck me and gave me a bit of perspective on how we relate to one another. So again, always keen to hear your thoughts there. So the next type of attachment style when we move on from secure is those who are anxiously attached. And these people never feel close enough or loved enough. And that word enough, I think, is really powerful in our culture too, right? Because we have so much, particularly in the Western world. But do we have enough? Mm, that's a question. So those with that anxious attachment style have often experienced divorce or abuse, uh, appearance, death. Um, and they are more prone to depression and drug abuse and anxiety and eating disorders. And then lastly, talking about those who are avoidantly attached, 
avoid closeness. They remain aloof, they remain distant. And this they're considered insecure. And the cool thing is we can combat these by simply thinking about the positive relationships that we've had or in the long term by cultivating a relationship with someone who has a secure style. And in fact, building from this, we start to look at Emiliana Simon Thomas's work um, referencing how that attachment style that's shaped by those early childhood experiences also affects how oxytocin is released in the brain. And we talk a bit more about oxytocin later on, but it's been tied into something called our care nurturance circuitry. <laughs> um, and it um, basically, all the study goes to show that those who are securely attached um, produce more oxytocin. And uh, those who are anxiously, atta anxiously attached um, have a greater um, amygdala response in their brain to negative feedback. Uh, those who are avoidantly attached have a lesser response to positive feedback. So, in other words, this is all a long way of saying that those who are insecurely attached, be it through avoidance or anxiousness, increase the sting of criticism and they dampen the thrill of praise. That's actually word for word what's written here. They increase the sting of criticism and they dampen the thrill of praise. And how true is that? Have you known people who you cannot compliment, but they will take on negative feedback in a heartbeat? Interesting, isn't it? Where does that come from? What's, what's that grounded in? Something about the way that our minds work, right? That says that we're prepared to accept criticism or believe negative things about ourselves and yet not believe positive things. I can totally relate to, to having that approach at different points in my life. And I think I'm better at accepting praise now, but certainly earlier... I would far more readily accepted something negative about myself. So to bring this idea of attachment to a, to a close, this small section here, Megan Leslocky looked into these different attachment styles and just talked about how do we overcome insecure attachment. And she just suggests that first of all, we need to understand what our personal style is and then does recommend seeing a therapist with expertise in attachment. And can I say from my own front, probably one of the most valuable things that I have ever done was actually to go and see a counselor a few years back. And when I went and did it, I didn't actually have anything that was too pressing on my mind at the time. But a friend I was talking to about it, and he was very complimentary about just having somebody that you can talk to who is kind of separate from your world. You know, they don't have a vested interest one way or the other and can just listen to you and provide another pers perspective. And so I went to see this counselor with, with that in mind, and I just found it really, really helpful. So I would encourage anybody, I think that we have sometimes a very negative attitude towards those who go and see counselors, but I would say it's actually, I, I have the opposite opinion now. I think very, very highly of anyone who's done that. I even know of a couple who regularly go to marriage counseling, uh, not because they have any major issues at the moment, but because they don't want to have issues. And isn't that just a healthier way to live? So I will just leave that thought with you. If this talk about attachment styles has stood out to you, then by all means, seek out a counselor, seek out a, a therapist, somebody that you can start to talk through some of these issues with. It is absolutely one of the most valuable things you can do. And if we agree with what was talked about earlier, that our attachment to other people and our relationships are so important, when we say to people, no, no, I'm going to deal with it by myself, doesn't that just now scream of futility. We are not designed 
to figure things out by ourselves. We're designed to do things in community with other people. And that leads into the next section. And this is where we start to get into the biology of our connection. And we begin by talking about the vagus nerve. Now, the vagus nerve is a nerve that starts at the top of our spinal cord. It goes down through the neck muscles um, that we use to nod, to make eye contact and to speak. And it connects a lot of key physical functions, including the oxytocin network. And we're going to define oxytocin a little bit more in a moment, but just bear that in mind for now. It's also connected to immune response, to inflammation response, and it coordinates the interaction between our breathing and our heart rate and our digestive processes. So when you understand how deeply networked this nerve cluster is, then we can understand that activity in the vagus nerve is related to feelings of connection and care. And so it activates a response to emotions, responding strongly to empathy and weakly to emotions like pride, and shows you how we're an integrated system. You know, you can't just experience something on a physical level and not have an, uh, an effect on a, what did I say, on a physical level, have an effect on a, on a, on a mental level. And vice versa, you know, these things are all connected here too. So one thing that studies have shown is that people with a lot of activity in their vagus nerve cluster show more positive emotion. They've got stronger relationships and more social support, more altruism, looking, you know, working out for um, a win-win situation. So if this is so important, let's get into it a little bit more. I've used this word a few times. You might have heard it before, but oxytocin. Uh, it's more colloquially termed the love hormone. Isn't that beautiful? It's a neuropeptide. <laughs> um, it's a sequence of amino acids that affects the brains and the organs. The brains? The brains? How many brains do you have? The thing is, it's increased by touch. And people with a particular gene on their third chromosome produce more of it. It has an effect, though, on how we interact with other people. If you give people a whiff of oxytocin, we demonstrate more trust, more generosity, more empathy, and the ability to read people's emotions. In fact, if you give a father oxytocin, the baby will show increased oxytocin. Isn't that amazing? So giving it to non-human species even increases monogamy and caregiving. In general, the more oxytocin you have correlates with reduced stress response um, in our hormones, in our cardiovascular system, in the amygdala, in the brain, and on the positive side, it correlates with secure attachment and peaceful conflict resolution in romantic relationships. So that's how all this is working on a biological level. Uh, Jeremy Adam Smith did some study into this to help um, highlight how much oxytocin shapes our social life in surprising ways. So it's produced by mothers during childbirth and, by, and, and in breastfeeding um, and is widely known as the love hormone or the feel-good hormone. But there's a flip side to it, uh, because while it attaches us to some people, it can also make us exclude others. So when you're hyped up on oxytocin, we're very loyal to our lovers, but we're very wary of other potential partners, which is actually kind of cool, I think. When you're really feeling that bond and connection to somebody, it makes you more guarded around others. It makes you more loyal to the one that you're with. I think that's really cool. We're also transformed into poor winners and sore losers, which I thought was really funny. So when it goes through our body, we feel envy during a game or we can taunt other players anytime we want something from somebody else. Um, not really sure why that would be. 
but it's quite striking. When we don't have a lot of oxytocin, we're also more apt to forget negative social encounters, so cruel people can fool us twice. So I want you to think about that for a second, right? Because oxytocin is related to having strong social connection. So when we have strong social connection, we have more oxytocin. So when we have a negative experience of somebody else, we're more likely to remember it. And so we don't get ourselves into that trap again. Whereas when you have isolated people who have less oxytocin, they're more likely to forget when they've been wronged in a social encounter. And to me, it kind of explains a little bit why we all know people who have a pattern of negative relationships in their life. Negative people, people taking them for granted or something like that. It could speak to, one possibility, is it could speak to how there's a bit of a breakdown in their social connectiveness, which means less oxytocin, which means they forget those kind of things more readily. Fascinating, right? On the other hand, oxytocin promotes cooperation. So to the extreme, um, boosting oxytocin levels makes us more likely to follow group decisions instead of thinking for ourselves. Um, and including, according to some studies, it actually makes us favor our own group and see it better than others. So that is something to be aware of, that a strong group dynamic, a potential pitfall, is that we do start to see ourselves as better than other people. It explains why we end up with social cliques right? Ever been on the outside of one of those? It's not so cool. When you're on the inside, it feels amazing. And thankfully, according to science as well, we don't need to be too afraid of sci-fi dictators pumping the atmosphere full of oxytocin, because although it does make us more trusting, we still have doubts and hesitations if a person that we're dealing with um, doesn't, you know, things don't kind of line up. So it doesn't completely brainwash us, but it does just give us a stronger sense of connection to those that are around us. So isn't that fascinating? Something very closely connected to that is the science of touch. At this point, Dacher Keltner jumps back in and just talks about, first of all, how we are physically built for touch. You look at the way that our hands and our skin are, are made. They're full of nerve endings and information processing neurons, is one of the terms they use here, to the point of it even manipulating our immune response. Um, there is a story that was actually shared um, if I can find it actually too, yeah, here we go, uh, about uh, babies in orphanages that would die far more regularly until caretakers started to hold and touch the babies. And then they started to live. Just that touch was the only thing they did differently. The thing that fascinated me about this in particular was how powerfully touch can communicate emotion. And in one study, a one second touch on the arm could communicate emotions like gratitude or fear or disgust with a 50 to 60% accuracy. You think about all the information we draw in to get a read on how somebody feels, and yet a one second touch can be enough to tell people exactly how you feel. Amazing, right? Um, we're better at differentiating certain emotions when they're expressed through touch rather than face or voice is one of the points that starts to be brought up here. So. Touching somebody creates rewards of uh, feelings of reward, reciprocity, safety, soothing, and cooperation. Um, and in certain situations, I would hope we've all experienced this, that a touch from a romantic partner is powerful enough to eliminate our stress response. Again, think about that. How powerful it is to make time, make space for touch. 
And this leads into a really fascinating study. It particularly looks at the United States, but I do wonder how relevant this is for New Zealand. It says that our culture is becoming touch deprived. So they did a study of friends at a cafe. And in France or Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, um, friends would touch each other over a hundred times in an hour. But in America, it was twice. And probably like a high five or a fist bump, right? Only twice. So if we recognize the power of touch and then start to say, wow, why are we so isolated from one another? I personally have believed, and I will say this for the record, that there is a special place in hell reserved for whoever invented the side hug. That, that what is what is that even about? Like, yeah, anyway. <laughs> Sorry, it was my little hobby horse. But yeah, think about how, how touch deprived we can be. Um, to combat this trend of a lack of touch, touch therapy is being used in healthcare and in education. It's been shown to almost miraculously increase weight gain in premature babies. Um, it reduces depression in Alzheimer's patients. It makes students more likely to speak up in class and it decreases mortality in patients with complex diseases. So those moments where we don't know what to say, a touch really does say a lot more. Lastly, though, in this little subsection, we start to look at the voice. And it's, look, it's a tool for connection, right? We're able to make a lot more vocal sounds than almost any other creature on the planet. I was going to say just animal, but, you know, reptiles, I'm sure, insects, whatever. Um, we can communicate a lot of emotions just through sound. So even going, hmm, aha, uh -huh, or just the screams we make when we've been given a fright. All of this speaks to how we just geared up for connecting. You know, we've talked about touch. We've talked about the voice. Um, talked about just being around other people and, and our social connections from growing up. We are just made to connect. And that leads us to the, uh, the happiness practice for this week. So last time around, we talked about the three good things and just being mindful of three good things that had happened, how beneficial that can be to our happiness. When I was coming back from London, having had two amazing weeks there, I took a moment when I was just waiting in a line for a friend to go through and get some info processed to just jot down the, the good things that had happened over the course of those two weeks, just to make sure that I made a feature of it. So if you haven't done that, I'd encourage you to do so. But this time around, the happiness practice is active listening. So in this case, they talk about taking 15 to 30 minutes to have a conversation with someone that you're close to and just ask them to share what's on their mind. It's not about you saying what you need to say, but first of all, showing attentive body language to them and not being distracted or interrupting them. You can try and make sure that you understand by things like paraphrasing what they're saying and asking questions, but then just try to be empathetic. Try to feel what they feel and avoid any judgments on what they've told you. And when they're finished talking, you can share something for yourself. This, this whole technique has actually been quite transformative for me and I think what has made this podcast possible the listening skills that I have learned from friends and mentors over the last few years. So I can personally speak to how powerful and effective it can be. So in this particular case, they talk about how it's useful for difficult conversations and showing your support. But hey, when you give that a crack, all right, over the next week or two, 
15 to 30 minutes to have a really deep conversation with somebody. And now we're going to jump into romantic relationships, family and friendships. But before we do that, I'm going to have another drink of water. Hang on. Mm-mm. Oh, that's good stuff. Can I also tell you how good it is to be in like shorts and a t-shirt for the first time in two weeks? I mean, being in the snow is kind of cool, but the novelty wears off and I miss the blue sky. So talking about relationships and marriage and happiness. <coughs> Excuse me. So Dacky Kaltner jumps in at this point again and talks about, I love this term, pair bonding. Mm, so romantic. You imagine proposing and say, would you like to pair bond with me? Science. Gotta love it. So pair bonding, uh, Dr. Keltner talks about, is a human tendency across all cultures. But relationships have come a long way in the past centuries. So things like economic considerations have given way to love and romance as the deciding factors in selecting a partner. That's actually quite radical. It speaks to how, in the West at least, our cultures have become a lot more wealthy. There used to be quite a rich-poor gap, and some would say that that is starting to reform itself now. But going a long way from when there were feudal lords who owned all the land and then everyone else was just serfs working in the fields, because we are a lot wealthier now, we look at different reasons for getting into relationships with people. So scientists start to look into the difference between desire um, and love which can be observed even in primates. So much like humans, primates express desire through actions like pursing and licking the lips and uh, through open arms and smiles. So love behaviors, but not desire behaviors, coincide with the release of oxytocin. So isn't that interesting, right? That these behaviors of love and connection as opposed to desire or perhaps lust, you could call it as well. It's the loving behaviors that lead to the release of oxytocin, which is correlated with the health benefits that we talked about earlier on. So this to me does speak, um, I've got friends who are involved in youth speaking, and one of the conversations they try and have is just to warn younger people about how, um, you know, a hookup culture can be quite damaging to you if you don't recognize that you do need more than just, um, more than just a, a, a romantic connection with somebody. You need that love and support that we all need from friends and family as well to feel that overall sense of health and well-being. So moving on from there, um, the science around marriage shows, first of all, that it does correlate with happiness, but researchers are still trying to figure out whether marriage makes us happier or it's just that happier people get married. Fair question. Some evidence suggests that it's actually happy marriages and not just marriage that make us happy, which I mean, okay, fine. This is where you start to split hairs over this kind of thing. Um, though they have shown that unhappy marriages take a huge toll on children's happiness, which again, I suppose makes sense. Um, certain demographics of people are more likely to have happy marriages. So for example, those who are older come from a higher social class and they're not anxious or neurotic. And in fact, I would encourage you to look up the work of John Gottman and Robert Levinson, because they talk about what is called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, dramatic language, but that is their predictor of whether or not a relationship will divorce or not. And they, the, the reason they call these four horsemen is that there's four traits that combined together have a 92% chance of divorce. 92%. So what are they? I will tell you. So first of all, it's couples who exhibit contempt, 
then criticism, then stonewalling, so in other words, being non-responsive, and then defensiveness. If those four are taken together, there is a 92% chance of divorce. Whilst happy couples, on the other hand, if you want something positive to aim for, exhibit humor and appreciation and forgiveness and emotional disclosure. Really interesting stuff. Moving into the parenting side of things and parenting and happiness. This one's really quite fascinating too. So Emiliana Simon-Thomas talks about the research on the connection between parenting and happiness that is still ongoing. Um, and on one side, we hear about spending time with kids has been proven to be only slightly more fun than housework. <laughs> uh, but on the other side, we're also hearing that parents are slightly happier than non-parents, particularly after having their first child. I think they show a lot of integrity here because they say the truth is probably very nuanced. And I think that when you look at relationships in general, you know, you don't just want relationships, you want quality relationships, quality friendships, quality people around you. And so if you have a good relationship with your children, a good relationship with your spouse, I can totally see how, you know, you'd want to make that distinction with saying it's not the institution that makes the difference. It is the relational quality that's involved there. So they make this point here too, and they say uh, whether we'll be a happy parent or not might depend on whether we purposely chose to have children and what kind of attachment style we have, and that the happiness of parenting may be more the meaning type of happiness and less the positive emotion kind. And we talked about that the other week as well, that there is a, a happiness that flows from being meaningful and purposeful and also another one that flows from just a, a positive experience. So it's worth thinking about too, right? Now, Emily Nauman did some study into what makes a happy parent. And in fact, um, they found a lot of factors, as you would probably imagine. But particularly parents who are older, male and securely attached tend to be happy. Then they have parents. I thought this was quite funny. Apparently, parents with trouble-free easy-tempered and older children are happier. <laughs> wow, you're kidding me. You're telling me if my children are easy-tempered and trouble-free, then I'll be happy? Get out of town. Um, I guess somebody had to prove it. And then they also talk about parents who have strong social networks um, that, that are married and also have custody of their children um, tend to be happier. And lastly, they reiterate this idea that happy parents make for happy children. So that to me speaks of the overall value of happiness, right? That we can look at happiness as a nice to have. And then I don't really think we care for ourselves in the way that we should. Whereas an absence of happiness to me speaks to, in this case, right? If you're unhappy, what if being unhappy also was a, a warning bell to say, actually, maybe you're missing a bit of social connection here. If you got socially connected, the happiness would follow. That's really helpful, right? If we look at it that way, an absence of happiness is not a judgment on you. It might be just a way of reminding us that, hey, the things that are most important to us have been neglected. So that's what I think this starts to starts to speak to. Then we go to Dacca Keltner coming back with some information about friendships and how they matter for happiness. So again, I love the scientific term. They talk about friendships or alliances with non-kin. So romantic have uh, this talk about how they've got a lot of benefits to our lives so while chimpanzees they've found and some humans i imagine use them to gain power the more civilized among us find practical help and emotional support and a sympathetic ear 
with our friends. So friendship and connection have health benefits. Once again, health benefits associated with friendship and connection, activating oxytocin, combating stress, and even increasing lifespan. You need to have a good social network. It's not good enough to say, no, that's just not the kind of person I am. I would suggest that with those kind of responses, it speaks more to our attachment style and not whether or not we've got some kind of freak biology that says we don't need people. It's just not true. And this was a lesson I had to learn for myself, by the way, in earlier, earlier days in my life. So when we move on to the value of certain social ties, um, water time, hang on. Mm-mm. So Juliana, now I believe it said Breens, B-R-E-I-N-E-S, looks at the different types of relationships that we can have and um, talks about the, the tangible and intangible benefits we get from social connection. So different types of connections have different benefits and drawbacks. So they talk about online contacts here. And saying how, you know, even things like Facebook friends can provide some um, advice and emotional support. But too much focus on that can lead to narcissism and loneliness, which connects with what I was saying a little earlier on, right? You start to use it as a way of advertising yourself like a product, like connecting, like not connecting like a human being. So for the most benefit, they just talk about looking for niche groups online and deliberately trying to offer our help to other people, which is kind of nice. The next level is talking about professional contacts. And more than just, you know, those we chat with while we're making a coffee in the kitchenette or something like that. Um, There are also people who find us uh, new jobs and expose us to a larger community of people with diverse ideas and opportunities. So one term that gets used sometimes is that uh, they call them bridging capital, which I think is actually kind of cool. Like you think that if it was just up to us, we tend to move in the same circles. And yet our professional contacts can be the one that introduce us to people outside of our regular circles. And that's actually pretty awesome. So similar advice here for online contacts, looking for telling you to look for niche groups to join and to help others and that there is a tangible benefit to our happiness. Again, though, don't don't you love this? How it's showing that these pro-social activities that we can undertake have a, a tangible benefit to our health and well-being. It's not just a an indulgent kind of thing. It's something that speaks to respecting our need for connection and helping one another. So anyway, I found that I found that really cool. Um, the next level was talking about friends. Sorry, I lost my place on the place on the page there for a moment. And it talks about how friends provide us with uh, deeper benefits, um, a sense of belonging, a chance to express empathy, and the main dangers of friendship are jealousy and dependence. We could become discouraged or bitter about a friend's success, or we could rely on them too much for approval and self-esteem. So the best way they've found from these studies to handle this is to remember that we want our friends to be happy, don't we? Yeah? And recognizing that their success benefits us as well. It's a much more abundant kind of mindset, so I really like that. And finally, talking about significant others, partners or best friends or family, provide us with a a massive amount of mental and physical benefits. They fall under what they call bonding capital. Again, man, whoever comes up with these terms in a lab, that's hilarious. They provide support in times of need. The biggest danger they talk about here is just relying on one person too much or creating unrealistic expectations or dependence. 
and so the remedy they talk about is just to keep cultivating friendships as well, not getting to a point where we stop reaching out to other people. So very cool stuff. Now, moving on to the next part, uh, Rodolfo Mendoza Denton talks about cross-group relationships and why they really matter for happiness. Um, because in his study, he found that it actually is good for our health as well to get rid of our prejudices about other people. Because prejudiced people get stressed in the presence of people outside their group. If you don't think you're prejudiced, wait until you're around a group that you don't regularly associate with and see how you start to feel. We all have them. That is a natural shortcut in our brain to help us make sense of the world that we live in. But what they found is that three deep interactions, three deep interactions with outsiders is enough to lower those stress levels. So to become more egalitarian, it's just really about deliberately exposing ourselves to people outside of our regular group. And that sense of insecurity and fear that you experience diminishes after as little as three interactions. I actually think that's a really cool thing to know, right? Because it's the uncomfortableness that we feel around an unfamiliar group that causes us to put up those boundaries and not go there. But to know that it's that simple to break them down, I think is, is just awesome. So in the last part, we start to talk about the science of empathy. Now, um, Emiliana Simon Thomas talks about how there are two types of empathy. One they call effective and the other cognitive. So effective refers to a feeling or an action. So it could be the way we absorb or imitate the feelings and expressions of other people. We actually begin to mimic others very young, you know, from infant stages. You know, that's why people pull faces at babies to see them pull that face back at us. But we continue to do that and we continue to mirror body language right through into adulthood. And some studies have suggested that that helps us understand what emotions other people are, uh, what emotions other people are feeling. Now, effective empathy might be facilitated by mirror neurons, which are motor neurons that fire even when we're just watching other people. It's kind of like an automated fu automatic function that's going on. But there's some controversy around that too, apparently, you know, disclaimer, disclaimer. Whereas the other side of this cognitive empathy refers to thought. So cognitive, cognition, thinking, same kind of deal, right? It's the ability to understand how people feel and to see things from their perspective. And this involves broader parts of the brain. Now they talk about next saying that empathetic concern can make us happier so long as it doesn't turn into what they call empathetic distress. And this is the kind of paralyzing feeling when we become overwhelmed by somebody else's suffering. So in general, empathy increases the sharing of positive emotions and brings people closer together. And if other people are empathetic, then we all get the benefits of this. But this idea of needing to support one another to make sure we don't end up in empathetic distress, I think is particularly powerful too. To me, it's why we look away from TV commercials showing children starving in far-flung parts of the world, right? We, we can't handle that as well. We look away from that. So it's interesting to understand that differentiation there, that we must move towards empathy towards one another. But there is a potential pitfall if we're not careful about it. Uh, Franz de Waal talks about empathy from an evolutionary perspective and just saying how it encourages us to care for our young and work cooperatively and all this kind of good stuff. 
Uh, and then lastly, uh, Roman, oh, good goodness me, K-R-Z-N-A-R-I-C. If you know how to pronounce that, record it and send it to me. Roman K-R-Z-N-A-R-I-C talks about the six habits of highly empathetic people. And uh, I'll include a link to this one as well, but just says that we can cultivate empathy. We can grow our empathy by learning and thinking more about the lives of other people. So some of the things that he does talk about is saying, you know, trying to have conversations with strangers and being genuinely curious about how other people live. And I love that because I have really been on this bandwagon of the power of curiosity for quite a while. Um, in fact, in any conversation, if you make your goal to understand how the other person is feeling and to express your own feelings, that leads to much more powerful conversations than just passing around ideas. Uh, so take your empathy to the next level is the challenge. And this kind of wraps up this part on the science of happiness because it speaks to, again, our need to connect with one another, listen to one another and value the relationships that we have. So much so to say that there is no such thing as a happiness in isolation. A thought that I have had that I'll share with you is my closing thoughts this time around as well, is how our wealth often empowers us to live alone. Think about a trait of those who are poor, those who live in poverty. You have situations where you have many living in the same place, right? You can have a family of, you know, well, family and cousins and all this kind of stuff living in the same house, a dozen people living in a three-bedroom home, right? And what happens when people get wealthier? Well, they move further and further out. Um, instead of having parents living with children, the parents have their own house, the children have their own house. And then when those children get older, they all move further and further afield. And look, there's no absolute right or wrong on this one, but I will say that it does seem to be a symptom of our wealth, that it empowers us to live far away from our support networks. And because of that, I think that is a large reason why we lack the happiness that we need from our social connection. We don't have that sense of family nearby. So for me, as I continue to, to grow and, and, and build on the opportunities that I'm starting to experience in my life, I'm actually seeing this is a bit of a warning light for me, that as opportunities start to come my way, that a natural outworking of that is that you end up isolating yourself. You know, you could buy your own house and then live by yourself because you can. If you don't need flatmates, don't get them. All this kind of stuff. In fact, there are some studies. There's a documentary on happiness, which I think is literally just called Happy. And it talks about in, um, I think, one of the Nordic countries, how this idea of more communal living is starting to come back to the fore just because of the social benefits that it uh, that it brings. I'm not advocating we all go off and join a commune, but it's a nice place of, you know, kicking around the idea and, and expressing the value of connectedness. So anyway, that is the signs of happiness. Take two, all about the power of connection, relationship, how we are made for it, how our biology supports it. And there is no happiness in isolation. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. You can always send them through to me at the Andrew Curtis show at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you and I look forward to sharing um, the next in this uh, series on the science of happiness with you very soon. 